See if they teach you how to remember their name. It rhymes with umbrella. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. The way your pastor remembers your name. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're in John 2. The first miracle Jesus does is not a healing, but to bring joy at a wedding. Anticipation of what Christ's first miracle would be. Anticipation is what fills our hope of what is to come. And anticipation is that the life we really want is just around the corner. That's what anticipation is. It's that, I'm, it's that next stage of life. I'm just not there yet, but we're expecting it to be just around the corner. Anticipation is what fills our lives and what fills our lives is really just this deep echo, this deep expectation that God actually might be real and that he actually just might show up in our lives. What would happen then? What would you expect from God? This morning, what are you anticipating from God by coming to this worship service? In this morning's passage, we meet Mary, the mother of Jesus, whose anticipation of God showing up is challenged. It's challenged not because her expectations are too high. It's challenged because her expectations of Jesus and God showing up are too low. First the story, then the glory, and we'll end today taking a little bit of an inventory. The story the glory, and then our inventory. First, the story. Turn to John 2. You're already there. The wedding at Cana. We don't know who is getting married, but we do know where the wedding is being held. It tells us the town of Galilee. We don't know the wedding party, whether the wedding party was a relative of Jesus or not, but we do know that Jesus was on the guest list. He was invited we don't know who was catering this wedding party, but we do know the wine ran out. We don't know the reason, but we do know the consequence. The bridegroom will be found guilty of a grave miscalculation. So this sets the stage for us to meet Mary. What did she expect of Jesus? I think what Jesus' mother expected is quite clear. Here it is. She expected personal accommodation. She expected personal accommodation. Listen again to verses 1 through 3. If you're new to using the Bible, the large numbers of the chapters, the small numbers of the verses, you will be helped in this 30-minute sermon if you keep that open and follow along with me. We're just going to take out of the text and explain it to you so that your faith would be in this and not in me. All right? 2, 1 through 3. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. There is something wonderfully endearing about Mary here. I think all of us can relate to. Mary is depending upon her oldest son, Jesus. 
in all likelihood, she's been depending upon him for quite some time. We know that there is no mention of Mary's husband, Joseph, here. So we can kind of assume or expect that perhaps Joseph is already dead. So Mary does what comes naturally. She presumes upon her special relationship with Jesus in a typical, indirect, motherly fashion. She asks him a question without ever asking him a question. Jesus, they have no wine. She expects Jesus to accommodate her personal agenda. With a tone and a mother's look, she expects him to meet her needs at this moment. They have no wine. Jesus, they have no wine. Can any of you relate to Mary? I think a lot of us can. I think most of us walk into church this morning assuming that if God showed up in my life, that he would understand the problems of my life and that he would make my life better. He would solve my social problems. You know, the troubles with the in-laws or perhaps the need for a better date or for an actual good friend. If God showed up, he would tackle the problems that I just can't seem to get a handle on. You know, like why my kids complain rather than show gratitude? Why my boss always seems to take me for granted but never give me credit? And so we assume that because we have a special relationship with God, that if he showed up, he'd get my life, he'd understand my needs, and he'd just accommodate my agenda for a better life. Now, you might be too religious to admit that. We're in church. But if you thought for a moment about where you feel disappointed with God, if you thought for a moment about where you're frustrated with how God is managing your life, then friends, you are doing what Mary did. We actually do it all the time. Perhaps for you, it's been a tough couple of years. And you might think, why did God let this happen? After all I've been through, my car broke down too? Or after all we've done, why can't we just seem to get through to our daughter? Faith family, what is your very real disappointment with God? The one that just won't seem to go away. Let's peel that onion a little bit more. What is your agenda that you're having a hard time giving up? the way your life has to go. Where are you trying to fit this God of the universe into your agenda? Well, Jesus' words to Mary are really words to you. Look at his response to Mary. It's found in verse 4, the first part of it. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? His reply might sound harsh, 
okay? But it actually is completely courteous if we understand the culture and the context, okay? Woman was actually a polite form of address, unlike today. I do not recommend that, okay? But, but back then, this was roughly translated as ma'am, okay? And so he literally asked, this is the literal Greek, what to me and you? In other words, he's asking, what exactly do we have in common here? How are our interests the same? He's implying to her, Mary, we are not on the same page when it comes to this problem. We don't have the same interests. Your agenda and my agenda are not the same. And there's no way of reading this without seeing it as a mild, polite, but firm rebuke. He is not on the same page with Mary. His agenda and her agenda are going to collide. And he cannot fulfill her agenda for personal accommodation because he can't be a servant to her agenda. He explains why at the end of verse 4. So let's read the whole thing again. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My day has not arrived When Jesus speaks of his hour as good Bible students, you'd have to look that up throughout the Gospel of John, and you realize that when Jesus refers to his hour, he is referring to his purpose in coming in the first place. So actually, in that word, the hour, you get his death, his crucifixion, his burial, his exaltation, resurrection. You get all of that. That's why he came. Mary is anticipating that Jesus, her oldest son, would solve her problems. Jesus makes it clear that her expectations of him are far too low, right? He came to solve a bigger problem. Now, she doesn't understand it all yet, but Jesus is going to do something greater than what party goers ran out of. He's going to solve a greater, more insidious, a deeper problem. And in order to solve that bigger problem, he cannot, you know, be kind of put into the box of a human agenda. He must be free from any human agenda because he tells us in John 6, I came to do the Father's will. So Mary accepts this rebuke. And notice she places a remarkable amount of faith in him. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, just a side note here, that's a pretty good life strategy, okay? A lot of problems in our lives would be solved if we adopted Mary's instructions here. Here it is in a principle for you. Ask anything, but yield everything. Ask anything. Lord, they they ran out of wine, but yield everything, not my will, but your will be done. I I don't know all of what you know and all of your agenda and how all of this is going to work out for my good, but I'm going to ask because you're a good, good father and you desire to know, but I'm going to yield because you have a viewpoint that I don't have. Can you imagine being from D.C. like I am, how important it is to turn into the traffic control radio. Uh, You know, when you're listening to the morning, you know, commute, and you listen to the traffic report, you listen up in D.C. because if they say up ahead on I-95, there is congestion, you want to avoid it, it is a 45-minute backup. Guess what we do? 
we say, I'm going to trust that aerial view of that helicopter. Because though I'm driving right now down in Fredericksburg and it looks like I'm all set, I'm going to get to work on time. It's actually that helicopter, that traffic view, that traffic report that says, hey, you need to take Route 1. You need to get off as soon as you can to get there. We don't have that. So we have to yield our agenda and say, you know what? That helicopter, he sees a lot further than what I can see, and I have to trust him. Friends, Jesus didn't come to make our life better according to our agenda. Jesus came to reveal his glory. Jesus' glory is the point of the story. The glory is the point of the story. Look at verses 6 through 11. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. John is not interested in the miracle of the turning of water into wine. That's what happened. John's interested in the significance of this sign. What's the point of turning Aquafina into Massage Grand Cru Burgundy? I actually Googled the most expensive wine in the world. That's what it is. Not a wine connoisseur. Sorry, that, that was my best attempt. All right. What's the point of turning Aquafina into your favorite bottle of wine? Well, it is not to breed faith that God can fulfill your personal agenda. It is to breed faith that he is the long-awaited Messiah. Last week, we saw people come to Jesus for the very first time and figure out who he was. They called him the Messiah. They called him the one to whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. And as you read the Old Testament, there is a steady drumbeat building that one day God is going to send someone, a Messiah, an anointed one, a Christ, and he is going to fix all this stuff. Centuries of expectation building in anticipation. And the next chapter, John chapter 2, we have his inaugural sign, his first sign. John wants us to see that there is more going on here than a party trick. It is not that they ran out of napkins and Jesus goes and collects a bunch of leaves and turns it into the best table linens. No, the, the point of turning water into wine is to show that this Jesus is that Messiah. This Jesus is the one sent from God to fix things. That's the glory being manifested so that you this morning might believe. Each detail in this story is significant for you to actually see his glory. We're going to share with you three details I think you'll find significant as you'll try to see his glory. Notice first, this wedding takes place in Galilee. 
Did you notice that John intentionally tells us two times where this took place? First in verse 1 and then in verse 11. He bookends this whole story with, This Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. Now, why would God's glory be unveiled in Galilee of all places? Well, when you read the Old Testament, there is every prophetic indication that when God shows up to rescue his people, he's going to take the same path that all of Israel's enemies took when they conquered Israel. Babylon and Assyria came down from the north and they entered through Galilee to destroy Israel. And when the prophetic word comes, the Messiah, the deliverer, Hosanna, deliver us. When he comes, when God's king finally comes and reclaims his own, he's going to come right through the same turf that the conquerors came to show that he is the mighty one. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, hear God's word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt in the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Does that sound like John 1 to you? The light of the Messiah. His glory is manifested in Galilee. The location is significant to help you see that Jesus exceeds the expectations of your personal agenda. Jesus came to fulfill the expectations of centuries of prophecy in the whole Old Testament. It's not that your expectations are too high. It's that your expectations of Jesus are too low. Notice the event. Notice the event. Jesus manifested his glory for the very first time at a wedding. Why a wedding? Why would he reveal who he is at a wedding when God wants you to know of his love for you? And the intimacy that is offered in a relationship with him. The one that he wanted when he first made the world. He reaches down for the language of intimate marriage. He chooses a wedding to exceed your expectation this morning of the closest intimacy relationship with God that's possible. So that when you think of, how can I know this God? You think of it in the terms of, I can know him as intimately as a husband knows his wife. God offers us much more than a servant-master relationship. More than a relationship a ruler has with his citizens. God offers us the closest relationship possible. A relationship between a bridegroom and a bride. My non-Christian friends, if you're here at church, we're so glad you're here. We just want to ask you, does thinking about God as your bridegroom coming to you as a bride, does that change what you would expect from God? That God does not describe himself as a cosmic cop wanting to ruin all your fun. That God does not describe himself as a headmaster there marking your exam paper, relishing in that big red F. Fantastic. Notice also that God does not describe himself as Stephen Hawking does, as the equation. God does not describe himself as a principle that just makes the math work. No, God describes himself in incredibly personal terms. 
He is your bridegroom. He is your husband. And he's offering you the closest relationship possible. Well, notice that the miracle he performs is the perfect symbol of how he'd want to celebrate this relationship with you. Jesus takes this ritual water, which is related to the old system of the law and Moses, and he transforms that into this celebratory wine at a wedding feast. And it's here, to signif- you know, it's here to signify for us that the old world, the way that people used to relate to God, by that washing of water. You know, a lot of us think that when we go to church, that's how we relate to God. We do these external things, these motions, these kneelings, these prayers, these incenses, these waters, these this. All of these external things, that's how I'm going to be in a relationship with God. And he goes ahead and he puts that over to the side. That's gone. And he says, this is how this new kingdom is going to work with a relationship with me. It is wine, not Old Testament rituals and purifications. But you are given a seat at the table because of what he's done. Not based upon externals and cleaning yourself up. Because he's come to give you a seat. So he cannot just fix that old system. He actually has to offer you a whole new way of life. And to make sure that you don't miss it, if you were really, really good Bible students, you would notice that John is really intent on telling you each day of the week for his first week here. Go back this week, read John 1. And notice that John wants you to be able to count. He wants you to count each day of the week because John starts a lot like Genesis. In the beginning was the word, day one. Okay? He wants you to count like that. And guess which day this miracle takes place? He wants you to count to day seven because what God is offering you is the closest relationship possible that you can be entering into God's rest. Day seven, and God rested. No more works that you do to earn that relationship, but you are brought in and you have a seat at the wedding supper of the Lamb to rest and to enjoy his presence. Now, the other bridegroom in this story has failed his responsibility, but Jesus steps into the bridegroom's shoes. The other bridegroom is completely clueless about what has happened, but Jesus, the real bridegroom, knows exactly what he's doing. He has come to bring you to the wedding supper of the Lamb. The wedding feast that's in Revelation 19, that's inaugurated in the new heavens and the new earth. And so this morning, you should be asking this question. How is a holy God ever going to be able to be united with me in an intimate relationship with people like me who have spiritually played the whore? How is God going to have a relationship with someone like that? For me to be able to sit at his table and to drink the cup of his new wine, Jesus is going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath. You see, the Bible is going to tell the story as you follow through John that life for us means death for Jesus. Friends, God has showed up, and he doesn't come to accommodate your personal agenda. And it's not because your agenda is so bad. It's just because your agenda is so small. What we want, if you're anything like me, are just some basic improvements in this life, right? I mean, we just want this life to be better, 
easier tomorrow. But Jesus did not come to make your life better. Jesus came to be able to bring you to the feast of Revelation 19. And in this sign, in this sign of a miracle at a wedding, it is a symbol of that feast itself. It is for us to anticipate the joy that it will be like to be at the wedding feast of the Lamb. But you know what? Christ will not enjoy this wedding feast of the Lamb without us. We miss out on this wedding in Cana, but we will not miss out on the wedding that is to come. Because what did Jesus say? We see this at the time where we take the Lord's table. Christ tells us, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the glory that the disciples were able to see and to put their faith in him. Notice that the servants saw the miracle, but they didn't see the glory. Only the disciples saw the miracle and the glory because they put their faith in him. They believed in him. Their faith that he would accomplish for them far more than their petty plans. Faith that would bring them to the wedding supper of the Lamb because the real bridegroom has come to rescue his bride. Is that your expectation of Jesus? That he would bring you to heaven itself? Or would you today, right here, right now, happily settle for less? Let's take an inventory. Are you ready for an inventory? A little spiritual inventory. Would you happily settle for a happy home life? You know that happy home life you picture where the kids are running to the table, enjoying sitting there, and they just cannot wait to listen to your pontifications. <laughs> Say that again, Dad. Would you happily settle for a job that wasn't boring? You know, the one that you enjoy getting up and going to? Not because you want to be rich, but just because it's exciting and it's new and it's interesting. Would you happily settle for a life that didn't have doctor's appointments? Would you happily settle for a life where you knew as a wife that you were loved? Uh, as a husband, your wife delighted in you. If you had those things, and Jesus could give them to you, but nothing more, would that be enough? I fear that for many of us it would. That means that you have not seen his glory. What's worse is that so often we judge Jesus because he is not giving us these lesser things. He's not giving me my personal agenda, so he must not love me. He's not giving me my personal agenda, so he must not be real. He's not giving me my personal agenda, so I can't really trust him. I might have to repeat this over and over and over again because I really want you to get it, but I have people come to me all the time, and they say this, Josh, I trusted God so much. I prayed for this, and I prayed for this, and I prayed for this, but he didn't come through. He didn't come through, and I trusted him. My dear friend, you did not put your trust in him. Your trust was in your agenda for him. Your faith was not in God, but in what God must do for you. 
Faith family, my personal agenda and your agenda is not what he came to do. He came to do so much more. And we forget that every, every week. I forget it every day, much less every week. I want to measure God's love for me by how promptly he's giving me what I want. I want to measure the reality of his power in my life by how quick he is at fulfilling my agenda. Perhaps you're like me. You've decided how your life has to go. And if God is going to be loving and kind and this good, good father we sing about, he's going to have to get in line with your agenda that you have set. All you really want is your agenda. And you're watching God taking out your measuring card, your scorecard, to see if he's doing it or not. And some of you this morning are pretty upset that he's way behind schedule. I get it. I think here's where we all agree. We need God to work. We expect God to work. But faith family, our expectations are too low. If you caught a glimpse of his glory, you can shift your faith from your agenda for God to just having your agenda in God. Instead of God being fit into your agenda, now God can become your new agenda. When the reality of his glory comes into your life, we can say from a heart, I'm with God because he's God. Not because of what he can do for me or the things I want him to do for me. I'm with him because he's God. Has that happened to you? Has Jesus re-engineered your agenda? What are you expecting of Jesus? For him to accommodate your agenda? Or for him to become your agenda? This morning, may you see that Jesus Christ exceeds your expectations. Let's stand again and let's turn this song that we just sung. It was a new song to us, but I pray that you can sing it from a heart now that has the expectations that you're good. Your goodness has been following me all the days of my life. You've been so faithful because it's not about him fulfilling our agenda. It's about him being God. And we just need to say back to him in our prayer of response, God, you are good. Would you stand with us and sing the goodness of God? All my life you have 
been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am made, I will sing of the goodness of God. scorecards, how good we think you're doing. We lay down our scorecards of how good we think others are doing, fulfilling our agenda. We surrender our scorecard to you. We surrender our agenda to you. And we thank you that you 
want to provide us joy, a feast, new wine. The old is gone, the new is come. You're making all things new. We are new creations. Forgive us, Lord, for putting you into our box. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking about our agenda above yours. Lord, your exp- our expectations of you are just too low. Pray, Lord, that we'd be satisfied with the goodness of God, that you'd satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we would praise you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen.